There's a lot to be said for the existence of racism in the schools. I mean, I wasn't really taught anything in the schools about the Spanish in South America. There's a lot to be said about those things, but that cannot take the place of an honest and objective analysis of what is really ailing our schools and our students and how best to educate them and to prepare them to be employable adults. And it is, and that's the danger that we're facing now. And now, the good fight with Yasha Monk. Welcome to the first edition of the new version of The Good Fight. As I told you last time, I was starting an exciting new venture. I'm trying to build from the ground up a community of people around the world committed to defending the values of philosophical liberalism, the values of a free society, the values that are at the core and have been at the core for three or four years of The Good Fight podcast. Now, when I was last talking to you, I had no idea how all of this would go. I had no idea whether anybody would be interested. I had no idea whether anybody would join up. Folks, the reception over the last days has been just incredible, just wonderful. We have about 20,000 people who have signed up to receive our articles. We have a phenomenal number of paying subscribers. I really think we're going to be able to build this community from the ground Now, we have wonderful articles about the state of liberty and how to defend it around the world that are already on the website and that are still coming out in the next days and weeks and months. We have some wonderful events coming up, including many that will feature past contributors to this podcast. On July 19th, for example, we're going to have a debate about the global future of freedom with Ivan Krashtev, whom you know from this podcast, with Potap Mehta, whom you know from this podcast, and with Denise Dresser, a wonderful journalist from Mexico. I'm also going to have a debate with Neil Ferguson, the British-American journalist and historian, because we had an exchange on Twitter where I, in founding this community, said, I'm worried about illiberalism on the left, but the biggest threat to freedom remains the populist right. And Neil disagreed. He thought these populists are fading and we shouldn't worry about them too much. So Neil and I will debate this out. I will try to persuade him and he will try to persuade me. So all of that is to say, please, please, if you haven't yet, go to www.persuasion.community. That's www.persuasion.community. And make sure you get those articles in your inbox. Perhaps consider joining up as a subscriber and becoming a real member of this exciting community. You will be joining like-minded people from all around the world. And we're going to have a real social element, trying to connect people to each other, to build an esprit de corps. I'm so excited about it. I am proud to be an anti-racist. The opposition to racism, the disdain of racism, the hatred for racism, is at the very core of how I see the world. But at the moment in the United States, there's this very, very strange phenomenon in which the word of anti-racism is increasingly becoming associated with some movements, with some ideas, with some positions that are anything 
But I was looking a few days ago at a presentation that all of the white employees of the city of Seattle had to sit through an anti-racist training, supposedly anti-racist training, in which it was said that values like objectivity, values like perfectionism, values like intellectualism were a hallmark of white supremacist culture, that there was something essentially white about these values. Now think about that for a moment. Think about that. What this is saying is that white people are somehow more intellectual, are somehow more perfectionist, are somehow more objective than black people, that white people value intellectualism, objectivity, and things like that more than black people. That is incredibly racist. Now, you might dismiss this, even though a similar document was used in a training document for school superintendents in the New York City public school system. We'll come back to that in a few moments. But it speaks to a wider and deeper mistake that some of these supposed anti-racists are making. When you read some of the best-selling books in this idea space, when you read White Fragility by Robin DiAngelo, or for that matter, How to Be an Anti-Racist by Ibram Kendi. The argument in these books is that whites have to recognize that they have deep things in common with each other. They have to come to identify with their whiteness in order to then remedy the historical sins. But this is not a humanism which emphasizes what we have in common across ethnic and religious boundaries. This is not a demand to live up to our principles more fully than we have in the past. It is not the belief that we need to recognize and grapple with the injustices many minority groups are facing today in order to be able to overcome them, in order to be able to have more in common and be more connected with each other. It is ultimately a racialism which sees friendship, relationships, love between ethnic and religious lines as inherently fraught, inherently problematic. You might think I'm exaggerating. Or you might think that this doesn't really play out in any context where it has a real impact on the world. Well, to answer that objection, I want to take you into the actual day-to-day -day world of education in the United States at the moment. And what I am going to start the podcast off by doing is to play a short clip from a meeting of a local board of education in Lower Manhattan. Now, you will see that emotions are running very high, and you may be a little confused about what exactly the woman who is about to talk in a moment or two is accusing somebody of. Bear with it. It hurts people when they see a white man bouncing a brown baby on their lap and they don't know the context. That is harmful. That makes people cry. It makes people 
walk out of our meetings. They don't come here. They don't come to our meetings and they give me a hard time because I'm not vocal enough and I'm not trying to be a martyr. I'm trying to illustrate to you that you think I'm a fuck, excuse me, you think I'm a social justice warrior and you think I'm being patronizing and I'm getting pressure for not being enough of an advocate. And I take that to heart and that hurts me. And I have to learn to make how to be a better white person. I would like you to know don't have people telling you that. I would like to know before this meeting adjourns how having my friend's nephew on my lap was hurtful to people and was racist. Can you I, please I, explain? I, Tom, I have explained it to you. You can uh, Google, you can read a now. book. Read a book. Read Ibram Kendi. Read you white fragility. Read you how to talk said. to white people. No, no, no it's no, not no, my no. job to educate you. You're okay. an educated white man. You're right. and you can read a book my friend and you can is going to yourself. educate you, Robin. My friend will educate you. Did you catch that? Did you, did you catch what the accusation here was? That's right. It seems to have been that it is somehow bad, it is somehow racist for a white man to have a brown child in his lap. That without explanation, people would be traumatized by seeing that. And then, of course, you see the obligatory reference to white fragility, to Ibram Kendi. When this position is questioned, these books are invoked as the explanation. Now, what kind of vision of society does this speak to? What kind of idea of progress is it that, say, a white man who happens to have mixed-race children would have to be afraid of how holding their own child in the lap might trigger a bystander who isn't aware of the fact that this white man happens to have a spouse of a different ethnicity. It is a vision of a world that is deeply antithetical to the kind of anti-racism that I stand for. Now, the one beautiful thing about watching this one and a half hours of this meeting, much of which was unbearable, is that I discovered a wonderful man by the name of Edward Zigari. And he really speaks better for himself than I can speak for him. So I'm going to let you listen to the speech that he made earlier in that meeting in response to the ideas of the lady who believes that it is racist for a white man to hold a brown child in his lap. Yes, I'd like to speak. And I'd like to respond to Robin and this one vote that I received. Robin, you don't know who I am. You don't know anything about me. You don't know about my background. You don't know about how I suffered in the public school system, a segregated public school system. You don't know how I was in foster homes. You don't know how I was homeless. You don't know how I felt when I tried to educate myself in a segregated, underperforming public school. And now you, in your comfortable white world, can tell us about 
how we ought to reach down and help the poor Latino and help the poor Black condescendingly look at us as if we are inferior. Okay, condescendingly tell us we've received one vote and you ought not to sit next to me because I am Robin Brochi. I am Eric Goldberg. Okay, that's what you want to do. But what I want to tell you and Eric is what you're proposing is hollow because never, never do I see anyone or any of these advocates really in communion with these poor students that are not getting the education that they deserve. Do you understand that? Now tell me about my one vote. Maybe I have one vote because people like you keep us out of these opportunities to speak. Perhaps you don't want me to speak. Perhaps you'd rather me be quiet. Well, I won't be quiet because I have a voice, Miss Broshi, and I have a voice, Miss Tanakwala, and Mr. Goldberg. I have a voice now, and that's what we want. We want Black liberation. We want Latino liberation. We want you to respect us. Do you understand that? We don't want handouts. We don't want to be said, oh, come to Clinton, come to Beacon with my child because you're inferior and perhaps some of your intelligence, some of our intelligence can rub off on you. But I see through this nonsense and I see through this racism and I understand it. And I am going to vote no when I see all of these nonsensical uh, diversity positions that lack substance, that lack, that, that are really cosmetic in nature. Cosmetic diversity, that's what you're looking for. You're not looking for true change. You're not looking to really educate all of the people of this district. You're comfortable in your capitalist, unbridled capitalist world. You don't want to teach Latinos and Blacks fractions and decimals and how not to get ensnared in these, uh, in these mortgages where, where they're uh, adjustable rate and so You don't want to teach them that. Because that's how you remain comfortable. That's how you remain where you are. Do you understand? Well, I have one vote, and I'm going to make the most of this one vote. Okay, and I'm not going to listen to any of this nonsense anymore because she now doesn't want to listen to me because she thinks that I'm not worthy, you see, of being on the diversity committee because I'm an inferior Latino. That's what you think and that's what Eric thinks. You understand? Well, the Latinos and the African-Americans of this city are not going to be fooled. Do you understand that? Are not going to be fooled. And I have one vote, but I am your vice president. And I have one vote, and I am Eric Goldberg's vice president. And I have one vote, and I support my president, Maude Moreau, what and what she's doing and what she's trying to do. Because leadership, you see, is about building coalitions with people that you disagree with. It's about reaching out. To, to Maude, reaching out to Len, reaching out to Ben, and trying to make progress. It's not about showboating and white fragility and all this nonsense that doesn't make a child learn.
that doesn't teach a poor kid anything. Okay, so Ms. Broshi, before you start making accusations about me, about my one vote, you ought to get to know me. You ought to sit down and have lunch with me. But perhaps you don't know very many Latino people and you don't have lunch with them. Perhaps you don't know very many poor Blacks, do you understand? So before you make these conclusions and draw these the, the, these assumptions, you ought to get to know me. And, and you know, I'd like to get to know you. I'd like to get to know Shino. But for some reason, I don't deserve a say. And that's all I have to say. And, and I agree, and I support Maude Marone, and I support what she's doing with the uh, NISIP grant and the integration effort. And I am sure that we can get there if you just let her work. And if you, in good faith, reach out to her and to others that don't happen to disagree with your hollow and shallow diversity of pronouncements. Thank you very much. Now, that man who's incandescent rage, who's controlled Philippic, whose incredible eloquence you just heard on the podcast is Edward Irizari. Edward is an attorney in New York City. He has a child in the New York City school system. And he has been horrified in the last months and years how some of these self-proclaimed progressive, some of these self-proclaimed anti-racist, have been hampering real progress on the problems facing New York's public school system. And so I decided that Edward should come onto this podcast and tell us a little bit about the impact that this kind of ideology is having on bodies with real power, real influence over the lives of children that are normally out of the national, the international spotlight. I hope you enjoy the conversation. Edward, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you for having me. So our listeners have just heard a little bit of this bizarre exchange at this council. And I think it's important to take people a little bit in this sort of world, which is an institution that many people don't know about. It's not the United States Congress. It's not one of the most visible institutions in this country, but it does actually have real responsibility for setting the policy of how schools operate in one of the biggest public school systems in the city and the world. What brought you to the council? Why do you volunteer your time as an attorney? I'm sure you're busy on this council, you know, what are some of the goals that you wanted to pursue on this body? Well, I have a son who was in the public schools and is in the public schools here in New York City. And I was concerned about the quality of education that he was receiving and how he was being treated in the public schools. So I am a fan of rigorous education, demanding education. And I think that when students are in elementary school, it is a very important time for them to gain the fundamentals of math and reading and writing. So when I felt that that was not occurring in my public school, and he is an English language learner, English was not his first language. When I felt that they weren't really making a strong effort to make sure that he caught up with his peers and began to perform proficiently, then I became involved. I began speaking to uh, teachers and administrators in his school, and I felt that they weren't very responsive. 
I also felt that there wasn't really much concern for bullying in the schools, you know, the way students treat each other especially students that don't speak the language. So because my son, I felt, was being isolated, was feeling isolated, was having feelings of rejection, I got involved. I lost quite a bit of time in my practice just going to the school, just monitoring my students' progress or my son's progress, who I guess became (laughs) my student. And I felt it ought not to be that way. I felt that you know, I should be able to send him to the school and the school should be doing a wonderful job of educating him and educating him as an English language learner. So because of that, I became interested in how the administration of the school was set up and how the policy was made. And Mm -hmm. so I ran for the city council and I was elected. And I understand that this concern for high quality education is very personal to you because you grew up under difficult circumstances and fought very hard to ensure that you yourself would have access to a good education. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yes, absolutely. When I was young, I was an English language learner myself. I spoke only Spanish. I was also, because of very difficult family circumstances, placed in various foster homes, institutions without parental guidance. And the only thing that I had, any sort of stability I had, was the public school system. But I became aware as I studied and I sought to educate myself is that many things came to me instinctively and I felt that I wasn't receiving a proper education or an education that would really let me compete. I mean, I remember being assigned books and reading books when I was very young, but looking at the pages of the books and trying to understand what these marks were, these quotation marks, these commas, and no teacher would explain that to me, you know, Hmm. in the elementary school. And so what I would do is I would, in order to teach myself how to write, I would look at a page, and I'm an artist and I I like to draw. I would look at a page and try to remember what it looked like and try to copy what I remembered in my mind and where these various punctuation marks went. And, you know, I thought to myself as I sat in the library, you know, there has to be a better way. I mean, someone has to be able to tell me where I put these various punctuation marks. And so I kept doing that for many years. And then I would ask my teachers sometimes, why aren't the students here being taught how to write a page like this. And the only thing I got in response is, we're doing this. And after that, I would sort of be the black sheep of the of the classroom and the teacher would not really speak to me anymore and would be upset because I was asking maybe in the fourth or fifth grade, how do we do this? And so, I understood that teachers could make a huge difference. I mean, that's why we pay them. They educate students, they're supposed to educate students, and students are not supposed to educate themselves. So when I went off to school and went to college and law school and uh, got married and had a child, I thought back to my experience and I felt, you know, is he getting a proper education? Is he being taught how to read, how to write, how to spell, how to craft a paragraph? Is he being taught mathematics? Is he being taught fractions? Is he being taught these things? And so when I got involved, I saw that 
many things had not changed since when I was a boy. Many things had not changed since 30 or 40 years ago. And I said to myself, well, you know, maybe I should try to get involved and offer a perspective that might help advance the conversation. Yeah. So now what's striking to me is that when I listen to you, this is a very noble and compelling sort of reasons why you got involved. Now, if I listen to that sort of train wreck of uh, that public meeting, it seems to me that the loudest people in that meeting would caricature you or characterize you as some kind of reactionary who is not an anti-racist and who, you know, fails to stand up for all that's good and noble in the world. Explain to me why the tensions in this border running so high and what it is that provokes apparently some people about what to me sound your sort of eminently reasonable and noble concerns. Well, I think that the Department of Education has a problem. I think that in a system where approximately 77% of students are low-income Black and Latino, and where the majority of those students are not learning how to read, how to write, how to do mathematics. That is a problem that must be addressed. It's a problem that the Department of Education realizes exists and has realized exists for many, many, many years. There's also, in my district, many schools where students are proficient, where many students, and not only my district, but other districts as well, where many students are proficient, they know how to read, write, spell, do math. And in order to get into these schools, many of these schools, they have to perform on examinations and demonstrate that they are proficient. And in many cases, they have to excel. So these schools are mostly white and Asian student populations. So many look at that and say, hey, there's segregation. We have to stop this. We have to eliminate all screens. Absolutely all screens eliminate. And the point of the screens is that there's some schools within the New York City public school system where people test into, as I understand, with just a test or just whoever scores the highest marks on these tests. And those tend to be very good schools. Is that broadly right? Yes, that's broadly right. Yes. There are other schools like specialized high schools where it's only the test. It's an objective metric. And you take the test, whether or not you have good grades, you get into the school if you score well enough. The Brooklyn Tech, the Stuyvesant, and so forth. So now people like my fellow council members that you saw on the video, they are proposing to eliminate those screens. And in some way, they suggest, and I'm not really sure how they are proposing this will happen, that the poor Black and Latino students that form the majority of the students in schools are going to become proficient or are going to benefit from being in proximity to their white and Asian counterparts, classmates. Now, they really don't give any specifics about how that's going to happen. They really don't tell us whether these students are going to commute from where they live to these schools. And they really don't give any specifics about how that's going to affect those poor students, students that are not uh, proficient, 
students that can't compete academically with their white and Asian counterparts. So they don't really go into those issues. I suspect that it's because it's a very difficult issue. It's a complex issue. But what I think the Department of Education and its allies on our council is doing is latching on to the very emotionally charged issue of racial segregation to sort of say, this is how we're going to solve the problem of the fact that we're not educating low-income Blacks and Latinos throughout our educational system. And what they're doing is stifling voices like mine, minimizes my position, minimizes my vote and my voice, simply because I want a proposal that is not cosmetic diversity, which is what I believe she's proposing. She's proposing just to have these students sitting next to each other. And and one of the interesting things about this is that, you know, it's funny, I think, the conversation often in this country about educational opportunity and mobility focuses far too much on questions of, you know, who should get into Harvard or something like that. And the truth of it is that whatever the right answer to that is, there's only going to be a very small number of people who are students at Harvard compared to state universities, state colleges, community colleges, and all of the other educational institutions that educate the vast majority of this country. And there seems to be a similar phenomenon here where a lot of the energy is about these sort of specialized schools that people test into. But even if those became a lot more diverse, the vast bulk of students in the school system would continue to be in the local schools. And if those schools are failing, nothing would be done for those. There's a whole bunch of issues that your question raises for me. So I want to get to them one by one. You know, one of them is this very interesting phenomenon where, you know, you who, who happen to be Latino are sort of accused broadly of being a white supremacist or of being complicit in white supremacy. And one of the things that I found so interesting about the national conversation in the last year or two is that, as one member of Congress said, I no longer want to have any black politicians or any black political activists who are not black voices. I no longer want to have any brown politicians who are not brown voices. And I think there is sort of an idea here, an insinuation that you're a traitor to your heritage or to your ethnic group, that, you know, you don't speak as a Latino. You may happen to be Latino, but if you take that position that you don't speak as a Latino, Um, How do you feel about that? And how do you feel about sort of how that characterizes the nature of views within, say, the Hispanic community? Well, I think it's an effort by individuals who many of them trade upon race, who trade upon this issue of, you know, I am a Latino, give me a preference, but don't really think about their community or the community that they're leaving behind. You know, when I was in law school, I read a book by William Julius Wilson. Robin talks about right fragility. I suggest that they read books by William Julius Wilson, who writes about these preferential policies and what happens to the community that is left behind when these preferential policies begin to accept or remove already advantaged members or middle-class African-Americans or Latinos from those communities. They accept them into these schools As a result, these individuals leave the community, and what is left behind is an isolated underclass of low-income minorities, you know, that are subject to increased police activity, to violence, and so forth. And when people say that to me, oh, you know, you you should speak like a Latino, or you're not speaking to a Latino, I don't think that they really understand. And I think what they do is they try to use uh, these arguments of Blackness or Latinoness in order to advance their own careerist interest. And they really ought to think about, you know, what 
the poor Latino, the poor Black is going through and what policy is going to help the community as opposed to themselves as individuals. And I think that when I hear that, I just, I think it's nonsense. And I think that it really doesn't advance the cause of the community, of making sure we have a community of educated individuals. I mean, and, and the evidence is clear. Look at the last 30 years. What have these programs really brought for us? What? I mean, you have poverty, you have the lack of education, you have despair, you have the continued existence of racism. So what have they done for us? They haven't really done much, if you think about it, because the real solutions are difficult, and the real solutions are costly, and the real solutions require us to speak honestly about a lot of things. And I don't think that a people that seek to stifle dissent want us to speak honestly about these issues. Yeah, you know, I thought about it, essentially the same issue in a, in a different context a lot, which is that, you know, when we think about how we can revitalize towns in Upper Michigan or, you know, in Ohio, often the answer is, well, we have to give people more educational opportunity. But, you know, if you go in every year and you take the top 10% or the top 5% of the local students and you manage to place them at a great university, that is good for them. And I'm a deep believer in certain forms of meritocracy. And I think they deserve to go to those good colleges. And it's a loss to our country and it's an injustice to them if they don't get into those good colleges. But the idea that this is going to help that local community seems very naive, because what you're actually doing is to precisely ensure that those people who would be the local mayor, who would run the local businesses, who would lead the local civic associations, you know, come back for Thanksgiving and Christmas, and perhaps for funerals, and that's about it, because they're going to go off to, you know, Manhattan and Washington DC and San Francisco and do great things in the world, as they deserve to. But if we're serious about how we can revitalize those communities, that doesn't seem to be the answer, and that is, in my mind, as true of mostly white towns in uh, the deindustrializing Midwest, um, as it might be, according to you, in certain neighborhoods in New York. Now, let me ask you another question. You know, on Twitter, this document keeps making the rounds. I tweeted about it, a bunch of people who are involved in persuasion tweeted about it, which is a presentation from the Department of Education of the hallmarks of white supremacy. And it includes things like perfectionism. It includes things like a worship of a written word. Now, to me, that may claim the mantle of anti-racism, but is actually deeply racist. The idea that writers who are from minority communities in this country, or for that matter, writers who are in Asia or Africa or other parts of the world, don't worship the written word, or that you know people leading dynamic businesses, again, whether it's minority owners in the United States or huge corporations in Latin America or Africa or Asia or every continent of the world, aren't perfectionist about their operations, is a disgusting calumny to me. But you know what I have trouble judging from the distance is, you know, is this a kooky thing that somebody says in a presentation and everybody rolls their eyes and it doesn't really have any impact? on the kind of education that students receive? Or do you think that this spirit is actually deeply shaping educational policy in a place like New York City and therefore holding students back? Is this something to worry about? Or is this sort of a little bit of rhetorical craziness that we would do better to mostly ignore? Well, I think that to the extent that it distracts from the real problems facing low-income minority students 
And to the extent that it takes away from the an emphasis on learning mathematics and learning how to read and write and becoming employable, to the extent that it detracts from those issues and a call to address those issues, I think it's a big problem. And to the extent that it begins to stifle voices like my colleague's voice, who wants rigorous education for all students, I think it becomes a big problem. And to the extent that it results in meetings like we had the other day on the 29th, where people are screaming at one another and uh, people are not offering explanations as to why another member is racist, just telling him to read a book, read, you know, White Fragility or read this author or that author, I think it becomes a big problem because we don't get anywhere and we run the danger of having our voices stifled and having bad policies and wasting the lives of young, poor, Black and Latino kids at a time when they most have to learn. There's a lot to be said for the existence of racism in the schools. I mean, I wasn't really taught anything in the schools about the Spanish in South America. There's a lot to be said about those things. But that cannot take the place of an honest and objective analysis of what is really ailing our schools and our students and how best to educate them and to prepare them to be employable adults. And it is. And that's the danger that we're facing now. So let's go to the actual sort of incident in question, which we haven't quite squarely talked about. So, you know, to me, what was so crazy, I mean, the craziest thing in a crazy meeting was this line that, you know, it hurts people to see a white man bouncing a brown baby in his lap or something like that. You know, what strikes me when I read something like White Fragility by Robin DiAngelo or what strikes me in some of these comments by Robin Broach is that it seems to go against my idea of what kind of society we should aim for. I mean, surely the society we should aim for would have lots of interracial couples who presumably might produce offspring. And so one of the natural outcomes of that is that a white man may not just be friends with people of color and have their baby on his lap every now and again. He may very well have a child that is his own, as many people do, thankfully, in the United States today, that is brown. I mean, how would you describe the difference in vision of a kind of society that you are hoping to create and the kind of society that some of your colleagues on the council are trying to create? Well, I don't think that they're trying to create any sort of vision of society. I think what they're trying to do is maintain power. I think it's a question of power. And what they're trying to do is insist that people view the world as they view the world. So, it's quite baffling. You know, when I first saw Tom, I didn't know if he was married to a black woman. I didn't know that. I didn't know if he had a relative who was African-American. I didn't know these things. So, I didn't jump to any sort of conclusion about that. But immediately, you know, Robin said, this is racist. And a lot of people said, this is racist. One of the things that strikes me as crazy about this, and I get this strong sense of that when I read White Fragility, and I got this sense in a way from people in the council that you know, their own lives might be so segregated, especially among the white people who sort of push for this ideology, that they just don't have normal relationships with non-white people. And so they think that every interaction between somebody who's white and somebody who's not white has to be 
fraught with tension. You know, and D'Angelo in her trainings argues that if a white person interrupts a non-white person, which I think naturally happens in conversation between close friends, that is to perpetrate an act of racism because it is using the whole machinery of white supremacy in order to silence a sort of historically oppressed voice. I mean, if that's what I thought about my friend or my partner, or even my colleague, that they are, you know, in such an inferior status to me, that every time that, you know, I get excited about what they say and I sort of cut in to sort of add to what they're saying, I'm using the whole machinery of white supremacy to oppress them. I don't treat them as an equal. I don't think of them as an equal. And I certainly can't have a close friendship because friendship by definition, I think, requires an element of equality. So, I mean, I, know, I guess you have a sense, what would it look like? What would this council look like? What would the schools look like? What would society look like if we adopted the vocabulary and the habits that people like your colleague Robin Groshi or like, you know, Robin DeAngelo and White Fragility ask us to adopt? Well, I think it would get in the way of real relationships between people. If we're always thinking about how, you know, we are white supremacists if we interrupt them. I don't see how this introspection, I don't see how this insistence upon our introspection really addresses the real problems that are hard to address. And I think that you make an excellent point. All of these council members have very privileged lives. They live in these luxurious apartments, brick-faced lofts, you know, in Manhattan, big enough to fit many, many students and many people. And they really don't have much interaction with the kids in the South Bronx, or genuine interaction with the kids in Brooklyn or in Brownsville. Brooklyn. They don't have much genuine interaction at all, and they never will in my opinion. And they are coming from these very privileged situations. And what I would bet is that they would like to keep those <laughs> positions. They would like to keep those nice apartments and, and the, the nice living situations. And there's nothing that they would give up. And so, if you want to talk honestly about these things, it would require them to give up, say, the vice presidency of the council. I mean, Robin Broshi used to be the president of the council. And I think that it's very easy for the wealthy and the privileged like Robin to speak about segregation and to speak about um, integration and how wonderful it is, but yet segregate their own lives, segregate their own privilege from everything else. It's very easy for them to say these things, but it's very difficult for them to relinquish power. And that is the truth that they don't want to face. And so they come up with this distraction, this cosmetic diversity argument, okay, of just having Black and Latino, few advantaged Black and Latinos in these schools, and that's fine, their work is done, they can go home without relinquishing too much of what is theirs. You see, but I think that, honestly speaking, they have to really come to terms with the fact that there are other ethnic groups, there are other ethnic groups vying for power and privilege and position, and they're going to have to deal with that. So we've talked a lot about some of the things that stop you from realizing the goals that you had when you joined the council and some of the distractions, some of the sort of unfair accusations. But I want to make sure that we actually get a chance to talk about the things that you think would help. So given that the state of public school education in New York City is at best mixed, 
given that there are clearly a lot of students who are being failed by the system. Rather than complaining about some of the crazy, what is it that we should be doing to actually improve the lives of these kids? Well, you know, I often think of um, the school in Upper Manhattan, which is the Manhattan Center for Mathematics and Science. It's a majority Latino school, which is a screen school, okay, and it screens applicants, and it has, I guess, the last time I checked. Now, just recently, there was a rumor that the Department of Education was going to de-screen that school, was going to just, just allow them to admit anyone from the neighborhood there in that majority Latino community. The students were up in arms. The students themselves were up in arms. The students who worked and who were students in that school uh, believed that they had worked very hard and distinguished themselves and distinguished themselves uh, enough to be placed in the screen school where they had a rigorous education, where opportunities were available, advanced placement, things like that, so that they might improve their chances to be successful in the society. So when they heard about that, they went to Twitter and they began tweeting how this is terrible, let's stop it, and this is horrible. And I think that the Department of Education backed down when they heard from those students. And I think we can learn. We can learn from those students. We can learn by going to them, by leaving our comfortable Manhattan co-ops and going to them and saying, what is it that you like about this school? What is it that you like? And, and what are the problems that you're having in your community? And how can we help you best learn despite these problems in your community. And so I think we've learned from that. And I think that more of a focus has to be on those issues and those communities instead of a few screen schools in District 2 where the students are already achieving. And I don't see the willingness for the Department of Education. Perhaps it's costly. Perhaps it's time-consuming. Perhaps it costs more than just saying, let's eliminate all screens and everything will be right with the world. So I think that that's a problem. And I think if we begin the discussion about those issues, about those students and those communities and reaching out to them, I think we'll find improvement. And I think that we'll find students that do marvelously well. And I think we'll find students that will integrate other screen schools because the elementary schools that they go to in their own communities prepare them well. And that's another issue, of course. Many of these de-screening advocates speak nothing of the elementary schools in these communities in District 2 that can better serve their student populations, where you have students that are in an integrated classroom in many elementary schools in our district. That's when you can really instill the right academics, the fundamentals of reading and writing and math. That's when you can do that. And right now, there is no focus on the quality of the elementary school curriculum. So I think that if we focus on those issues and we get away from just saying, let's eliminate screens, let's eliminate screens. If we focus on those issues, because if we just eliminate screens, just eliminate screens, what's going to happen is that privileged and advantaged families are going to get supplemental academic tutoring or supplemental training, what they're going to do is pay for that. And who's going to lose out? The students that can't pay for that, the poor students, the poor, talented student who has an opportunity, but 
because the school no longer offers a rigorous education, no longer offers an advanced placement, then that person cannot go to his family and say, oh, can I get a tutor? Can I go to this after-school uh, session? Because I want to keep up with my classmates. He can't do that, you see. So those are the people that are going to be hurt. And I try to explain that to my fellow council members, and it falls on deaf ears, and that's a problem. Edward, thank you so much for fighting to give a better education to kids in these public schools, and thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you very much. Have a good day. Thank you so much for listening to The Good Fight. Lots of listeners have been spreading the word about the show. If you too have been enjoying the podcast, please be like, rate the show on iTunes, tell your friends all about it, share it on Facebook or Twitter. And finally, please make suggestions for great guests or comments about the show to goodfightpod at gmail.com. That's goodfightpod at gmail.com. This recording carries a Creative Commons 4.0 international license. Thanks to Silent Partner for their song, Chess Pieces. Thank you.